1: Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
2: Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. This series is sponsored by our friends at Safer Roads GM, helping us keep ourselves and each other safe on the roads of Manchester. On the final episode of Series 3, I'm joined by DJ and broadcaster Paulette Constable, a.k.a. DJ Paulette. Paulette talks about her mum, who was a jazz singer in Manchester in the 60s and 70s.
3: When my mum was singing on stage with her band at the Free Trade Hall, that's when she went into labour with me and my twin.
2: And she describes being one of the first women in Manchester to become a DJ. You
3: know, not wanting to take credit for it or anything like that, but I think if none of us girls have done it, then it would have been a lot more difficult for the people now to come through because before us the only women who who were playing records were on the radio
2: i'm honored to be joined in the studio by a mancunian woman whose work as a club and radio dj at synagogue from being one of the city's first female club djs back in the early 90s to being one of the most sought after djs in the world today paulette constable yes. aka dj paulette welcome to humans x's manchester
3: thank you very much happy to join you Clint.
2: It's great to have you in, Paula. Like, we're going to talk a lot about your, uh, obviously, current work in radio and uh, in the clubs. Mm-hmm. But I want to start, first of all, by talking about where it all started for you. Where were you born? When were you born?
3: Where was I born? When was I born? Uh, yes, so 1966. Right, there's a bit of a legend, actually, family legend, and I, it's supposed to be true that when my mum was singing on stage with her band at the Free Trade Hall, that's when she went into labour with me and my twin. And she finished a set before they called for the ambulance and took her off to wow. the hospital. So twenty second of December, she goes off off stage like little because my mum's only four foot eleven right she's tiny little thing and she was massive, and she'd been telling the doctors all the time. I'm I, I'm sure there's two heartbeats there, and they said no, and it was at, you know nineteen sixty six. They do did, they didn't have like um ultrasound or anything like that and they wouldn't x-ray a pregnant woman you just you know you just don't do that so she's on the table and um along comes my twin yeah. Paula Da-da-da. and then they say ooh Mrs. Finlayson, there is another. <laughs> <laughs> so 22nd of December, then there's all this like palaver because I'm the wrong way round, which is why they didn't spot me. Because normally twins lie head to foot. That's right. And we weren't lying head to foot. I was lying across my twins' feet, just underneath my mum's rib cage. So I was really well hidden and pushed up to the top. So they had to turn me. And then pull me and I had the cord round my neck and that. And there was like the, this big mission to deliver me. And then there my mum is with twins and when she's been expecting one in the 22nd of December. So she says hmm, that we are the best Christmas present she's ever had.
2: It sounds like a beautiful Christmas present. So pa- Paula <laughs> Paula, and Paulette. Paula
3: and Paulette. Yeah, get your laughs in now. This is 52 I... years of everyone going Paula and Paulette. You could, we're your family like, couldn't they think of anything better or, or isn't it funny or you know, 52 years of great hilarity when me and my twin tell each other I imagine people it, our names.
2: as a parent myself, once you've got set on a name, they probably just had that name Paula didn't they? But and it then, wasn't, no, was no
3: there's more legend, more family legend <laughs> to, tell me. more family legend to this because my dad apparently used to send my mum to the hospital with a boy's name in a bible I'm the youngest of eight so every time my mum went to the hospital to have a baby, my dad wanted a boy and every time one popped out he didn't get a boy like my brother was the first and he's like half brother long story anyway when it came to me and my twin my dad did not send my mom to the hospital with a bible with a name in it because obviously he just thought yeah not getting a boy so we did we weren't named and um it like we were Taken home from the hospital, and I, I have, I tell everyone, I have a vague recollection of this happening. Is of us being sat on the top of one of these tall boys. My mum had this like writing, um, like a piece of writing furniture which folded out and a bureau. It's called a bureau. It's like a yeah. no. I think my mum called it a tall boy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Um, anyway, we were sat on there, and mum's like, "What should we call them?" And all the family had to go, you know, like saying what they thought it was it should be and my sister elise said i think they should be named paula and paulette and they said why and she said because it's cute (laughs) 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 she was seven at the time so seven years we were named by legend whether this is true or not by a seven-year-old
2: brilliant is she quite proud of that now yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, 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 yeah. And I just, I, I adore Elise. She's like one of my, I mean, all my sisters are my favourites. I've got a really good, tight, very loving family. So, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Your mum was a jazz singer, wasn't she? Yeah. Did jazz she make any and re- cabaret.
3: Yeah, did she, she make did make. Record? Record? She did make a record. Did you yeah. make a record? Yeah. yeah what's, under yeah, what name? We had loads of them under the under the <laughs> <laughs> We had boxes what? of them for years. It's what like, <laughs> what are they called? Um, the the album was called Now Tomorrow. You can still get it on Disco. because you know.
2: Like right, what? What was? The, it's what? called
3: Now Tomorrow by yeah. Blanche Finlay.
2: So Blanche Finlay, is yeah. that the name of the band? That- no, that's her
3: name. That's her name. Her band was called The Prophets. Oh, wow. It's really 60s okay. cosmic stuff going on. Um, but yeah, it was Blanche Finlay and The Prophets made this album called Now Tomorrow. There's a picture of my mum with the biggest Afro wig on and 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 a ding, Colgate Bright, ding, sort of like sparkly thing coming out of her teeth. I mean, it's, it's just a classic 70s sort of photo like a um, more sort of, an, I would say, shrunk down earth, wind and fire sort of vibe because it was saxophone, trombone, um, drums, keys. I mean, it's like a full, like orchestrated workout wow. uh, um, or arrangements, really. And yeah. my mum was singing covers like Tina Turner, River Deep Mountain High. She used to sing show tunes, Aquarius, songs from Hair, Jesus Christ, Superstar, that kind of thing. And then she wrote her own songs as well. So you'll see on this album, there's a track called It's Magic, and she wrote that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I'm going to check and there's another one called Chains and Gates, which she she wrote herself. I mean, massively proud of my mum. You know, mm-hmm. she made made this. It was like a self-financed album in the late 70s. And she made it herself. And she used to haul, like lug it round to her gigs at working men's clubs at the weekend and sell it after she'd done a set. And um, yeah, we also had loads of them in the cupboard under the stairs. And, it, and this, is a mother, this
2: is a mother of eight kids, isn't yeah, it?
3: Yeah, and a mother of eight kids and also <laughs> a mother of eight kids who went through Oxford University 69 to 72 um, did economics? E- economics got a re- got a degree there. She went to Manchester University. Did psychiatry. She got a degree there. Um, she worked for the city council. Was equal ops officer for women um, for a long time. You know, was was there at the forefront of equal ops legislation. You know, she she was working with it. You know, this is like groundbreaking stuff. And you know, to me, she was just this. You know, she's just my mum.
2: Yeah, and what a massive, massive inspiration she must have been. Oh, enormous, enormous.
3: You know, it's funny, there's there's things that I really like about clubs. And my mum also used to co-own a nightclub in Manchester. This is just going completely off piece, But she um, used to co-own a club called the Ebony Club. I think it was near where the press club used to be. And it was one of those clubs where, which again was groundbreaking because it mixed black people with white people yeah and in the late 60s early 70s you didn't honestly you didn't really find that mm. in clubs so I've always you know there, there's been a culture or it's some kind of awareness of nightclubs my mum's singing you know going out at night and like Nine o'clock at night, all dressed up in a finery, evening dresses and everything, yeah. and then coming back smelling of fags and booze. And my <laughs> mum never, <laughs> mum never smoked in her life. Oh, you know, she sh- she used to drink drambuie with three three maraschino cherries on a stick. <laughs> so <laughs> seventies, so seventies, but Amazing. yeah.
2: I remember the same thing. Being a DJ, you know, when when smoking was um, allowed in clubs, and I'd I'd have to come home and just change my yeah. entire outfit, go in the laundry. Oh, I've got, it, it, it,
3: I mean, you don't realise, I mean, I used to smoke as well. I For a time while I, while I was DJing, I was like, like, fag ash I just had like <laughs> 40 cigarettes going in a day. It was ridiculous, <laughs> it, it, really ridiculous. I was just lighting one with another. And then when they stopped, first of all, I stopped smoking and then they stopped smoking in clubs and it was just marvellous because you could go home and your clothes were clean and then you go to another country you know like I go and DJ in Switzerland or Italy and they were all or Spain and they were all still fagging away there and it'd be just horrendous you know you'd be like my clothes it's like such a princess my clothes are gonna stink like anybody cares it's like where's your rave spirit gone no my clothes are gonna stink
2: (laughs) (laughs) at what point did that um that spark then from watching your mum and being in being in a house where you know music and nightlife was the norm at what point did you decide you were going to have a go at being a musician because you were a singer before you yeah was.
3: yeah i'd always i think i think the the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in one way and definitely monkey see monkey do so i'd always see my mum singing mm. so when i was younger i always used to pretend i was performing on stage like and i'd do little shows for the family like I'd be standing on the step outside our our living room. There was a step out through the French windows to the garden and I'd stand on the step because that was my stage and I'd be performing and singing songs for my sisters who were like in the living room, obviously not watching at all, but I'd just be <laughs> like, you know, in my head I was on stage and I think it... We all just did take that and we were encouraged to do it as well. So, my mum made, you know, she didn't make us all sing and dance, but she did encourage us all to sing and dance. And we did shows for people at at community centres and my sisters audition for junior showtime you yeah, know it's just like <laughs> we were encouraged to do that and i I, I played violin at school i played piano at school did my grades and everything so yeah. we were encouraged to be musical we were encouraged to perform we were also encouraged to excel at everything so um you know i did sport i did music i, I was academic as well so you know we were just pushed into everything and and then left to make our own decisions as to what we were going to do in life. And I just really wanted to either perform, or if I wasn't going to perform, I wanted to be on the other side of it. So,
2: brilliant. Whereabouts in town did you live then when you were growing up?
3: Um, well, I was born in North Manchester General, Crumpsall Hospital. So we started off life in Presswich and Whitefield, and and then for a few years myself and my twin and a f- few couple of my sisters lived with my mum in Oxford while she did a degree, and the elder ones stayed here with my dad. And then when my mum finished a degree in Oxford, then I spent most of my formative years in Fallowfield on Birchfields Road opposite the bus depot.
2: Right.
3: Yes, yeah. mate.
2: What were the first records you bought when you started uh, collecting your own Um tunes?
3: I remember... Um vividly. The the one I remember spending a lot of money on and sharing with my twin, I bought Street Life by the Crusaders and um uh, Message in a Bottle by the Police. Cool. With and I shared that with my twin and we bought it on import on import. Two seven inches on import. Um at Spinning on the on Cross Street. Remember yeah. where yeah, yeah, Spinning yeah. was and we yeah. you go down the stairs but before then i'd had records i'd been given records or bought records by my sisters so I'd, i already had m pop music in my collection i had various other bits and pieces my sister elise she gave me her copy of um aladdin sane on the fold out because i just knew every word i learned uh, you know from the day she got it i just used to sit on the heater learning the lyrics and you know read the lyrics yeah, because yeah. they are you know yeah, they're yeah, not yeah. you know seven-year-old singing the lyrics to david bowie um time yeah. um
2: yeah. it's funny because i remember being smitten by boys records that probably i'm a bit older than you, so like 1972 73 and it was one artist i mean i loved elvis i, I learned everything that yes, elvis so ever are. sung mm-hmm. but david boy was like i was listening to his records learning the words because that's what kids did at yeah. 11 12 year old back then but i was hearing phrases and words and the names of places that I'd never heard before. So the first time I heard the word Ibiza yeah. w- was in a boy record. The first time I heard the phrase video film or videotape yeah. was in a boy record. Yeah. And it was just like, I'd never, pop music had never been like that for me. And it was like prophetic a lot of Amsterdam. what it did. Yeah, yeah, totally. You
3: travelled the world, listening to the lyrics of of other people's songs. It was just like, it, for me, it, it was like being transported, you know, I it's interesting that you said that you learned the lyrics because i think that's how, how definitely how i enjoyed music and albums and artists then it was it wasn't just the sound of it it was the words of it and the emotions of it that the emotions that were conveyed by the lyrics and it was the song sheets the artwork the everything yeah, everything yeah. all together made that really deep rich experience of enjoying music mm. so now i think it's a very different way of experiencing music where people are streaming you know they're, they're not even really touching anything they don't own anything there's no song sheet there's no you know other than the the sounds and you know, for sure they're going to learn lyrics because there's lyric videos on YouTube you know that that's how people are connecting with the lyrics now, yeah. but there's no, nothing tangible to hold and you know when when I bought an album from hmV or something like that, I couldn't wait to sit on the bus to crack the plastic mm. and then like have a little sneaky look inside and see if they put a song sheet yeah, inside yeah. Yeah. because that was all part of it so by the time I got home, I was like <laughs> you know, just <laughs> Something
2: desperate to put it on the record, player. I'm still like that. Now as much as ever I've been, I'm obsessive about the vinyl. And I'm going back through David Boy's collection again now and just making sure I've got every single album on vinyl, which mm. a lot of these albums I've never had on vinyl. So mm. but I'm really going through a boy phase at the moment and a lot of the albums that you buy now. They're absolute replicas of the first release mm. that came out, but to the point where they've got the David Boy fan club.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, and, remember, like, that? Little... remember that. Remember that whole thing about writing to a fan club? Yeah. I remember, here's the thing. I started going clubbing a bit earlier than I should have. And uh, <laughs> I remember going to Legends one night, and I, I'm I'm a dancer as well, so we, I went to Legends one night with my friend from school, Gabriella, and yeah. we sneaked in. So Legends um, is now Fifth Avenue, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. On, uh, is it Princess Street? Yeah. And um, we went in, it was a Thursday night, so the Thursday night was the um, alternative indie night. And we went in... And ABC were promoting their single, Tears Are Not Enough. And um, mm-hmm. in order to promote, and people used to do this in the olden days, like in order to promote their single, that they had like a nightclub tour where they just like pop up and appear and they do like little single signings. And they had a dancing competition. Can you believe that? Wow. Dancing competition. And I won and I won the single, seven inch single, <laughs> Tears Are Not Enough, which Martin Fry signed. Yeah. And then, like, so me and my friend Gabriella are like trying trying to stand the band, you know, as you do, shifty and closer, shifty and closer. And they're sat on this, um, there was like a little raised area overlooking the dance floor. And they're sat there with like champagne on ice and you know the whole band together and martin fry just kind of shook this bottle of champagne and popped the lid on it and it just sprayed all over me and my friend gabriella And we were like
0: oh standing <laughs>
3: underneath all soaking wet and they went oh we're really sorry come and sit with us so we sat with them <laughs> all night and i just talked about music with martin fry all night and i i asked him what's your favorite record at the moment and he wrote it down on the side of the single that I'd won. And he wrote Controversy Prince. Wow. <laughs> and and the label. And I still have that seven inch and it's still in its sleeve. Despite the flood that hit Ibiza, that hit the storage unit, that ruined all my record collection. This seven inch is still intact.
2: Amazing. Did you ever meet Martin Fry again? Because he used to go to I the did. Hacienda, didn't he? Quite I a lot. did.
3: I met he. He'd, he'd come to the Hacienda. I think he came to Flash a couple of times. And I also met him because I used to work for Piccadilly 261. Yeah. And I did. A, I was a junior reporter on a show that Becky Want and Chris Evans did called Saturday Express. And I interviewed Martin Fry, and it was just like. Do you remember me sending a letter to you? Because me and Gabriella, after that, the end of the story, after that, we sent a fan letter to ABC, not knowing whether he'd get it or not. And we wrote it in different colour felt tips because that's how grown up we were. (laughs) (laughs) We were 18 and writing in different colour felt tips to Martin Fry. And he wrote back to us. And we have the reply. I, I, well, Gabriella copied, photocopied the reply. I let her keep the reply because I got the single. because yeah. I won the single and she got, yeah, Brilliant. so we have that. You mentioned Piccadilly 261. Yeah, Piccadilly 261, that's where I started.
2: And that became Key 103, Is yep. so now the hits in it. Do you yep. remember the day, to me, when when Piccadilly Radio was launched, it was a massive day because it was, Our own Manchester radio station. Yeah, exactly,
3: because before then we'd been listening to, was it Radio 1 or, we, you know, we were listening to the BBC. It wasn't even necessarily Radio 1 as such then. But when Piccadilly 261 launched, it's like, oh, my, you know, we've got this thing for ourselves, telling our news, playing our music and um talking about our local experience and it was massive yeah and so that, yeah, yeah that was on. in the old building in Piccadilly which, yeah oh you know, god yeah, yeah with all the randoms <laughs> <laughs> yeah that building was, I mean, yeah. it was a real train spot. It was, it was full of weirdos, yeah. that building, every day. I mean, we'd every day that I go in to work at Piccadilly Radio, because I also worked in the record library for a while as well, and that was a hideous job. I hated it. I hated it with a vengeance.
2: Which record library? Sorry, the, the Piccadilly one? Piccadilly Radio yeah, record yeah. library. Yeah, yeah right. I did
3: that for a big stint. I'm not someone who can work somewhere in a room without windows. And it it did actually like slowly drive me bananas (laughs) and people and the the presenters always once they know that they've got someone in the record library that is quite um
2: obsessive
3: obsessive then their prs sheets just suddenly weren't filled in anymore and they just every presenter would just be like handing me the 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 pile of records they played on their show with a PRS sheet on top yeah. blank.
2: And you'd have to And do I'd it.
3: have to fill them all in. Yeah. And and in back in the day, that was I mean it's a big job, you know, writing down all the details and how much time of each track was played and and um, you know, Artist title yeah. label, and then you had to put all the writers' credits yeah. down as well. You know, it's just like, oh my <laughs> god, this is horrible.
0: But I
2: bet the first the first day you did it, you probably loved it, didn't you? Because it's exciting. I did it. was exciting. Talking, did, like, it was was exciting. And...
3: Month month three, yeah. bored. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> what other jobs did you do? That was that your first job then? Your first proper? No, job? No, that
3: wasn't my first proper job. My first proper job was working for. The, I mean, it was even worse than that. I, well, it wasn't worse because I earned quite a lot of money doing it. But I was an eighteen plus management trainee. For the CWS in Manchester based at Balloon Street you know where the, the old co-op bank is yeah um so I was based in travel and I was working in human resources so um first of all I trained in building society because we had a co-op building society through the travel company which is you know it was the done thing in those days but it doesn't make any sense now and then I went upstairs to work on training and I had to write the training courses for 60 branches of co-op travel. <laughs> <gasps> I was 18. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what. I, I yeah. didn't even know. It sounds <laughs> like have a nightmare. I to go from one end of Manchester to the other on the bus, let alone write yeah. the training courses for 16 branches of a travel company.
2: For a, a person of your age who was that obsessed about music back then to be doing that as a day job, it sounds.
3: Oh, God, I wanted to put a bullet in my head. It yeah. was awful. Right I, I mean, it was. I. It, it was one of those jobs that I think really was soul destroying for for my sort of character because i'm a i I am a creative i i like i love music i love art i love um film i love tv but just i like the creation of things i'm not really my strength i can do admin but you know i mean that is like really sticking in my cornea. You know, it's just like, (laughs) this is just just the worst job. And I hated it. And I did it for two years. And when I left, it was just the biggest relief. I (laughs) think I left in a, a... I, I always do that thing where I'll leave and then they will be like, oh, I've got no money. Now what? But I'd rather leave and have no money and do what I want than have money and be doing a job that I'm dying in. I just can't do that. I can't do it. I've well, never been able to do it.
2: You got into DJing a bit sort of accidentally, didn't you?
3: Yeah. To- well, not sort of. It was totally accidentally because, I, you know, I started buying records when I was like 10, 11 and... I've just always bought records. I had had a paper round, every penny from a paper round, I bought records. Then when I was at college and I got a grant, my grant all went on records. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> you know, it went on records and second hand clothes from Affleck's Palace. Yeah. And um, then... Uh, this is in the 80s, so Yeah, in have, the late, 80s, late 80s, through the 80s. Yeah. And then... It was ninety, ninety one, ninety two, 92. And I'd started dancing at the number one club. And I'd been modelling as well, doing bits and pieces of modelling. And I'd started to get a name for myself. And a friend of mine told his friend that I had loads of records, and she was putting on the night, at the number one, and she'd run out of money because she'd spent it all on hiring the club and doing the posters and doing the flyers and that kind of thing. And she didn't have any money to pay a DJ. And he said, "Well, you know, ask Paulette She's got loads of records, and you know, <laughs> you, you kind of need that." So she asked me, and she said, "Look." DJ from nine till two, I'll give you 30 quid. And at the time, you know, 30 quid was decent money then. Yeah. So I said, yeah, all right, I'll do it. I've never done it before, but I've got the records. And um, she's like, great. And then I said, I haven't got any decks. I don't know how you do it. I've never played in a <laughs> club before. Um, can I have a little bit of a um, tutorial or something like that? On And she said, oh, well, I've got a friend. He's got decks. We'll go and have a go on that. And we went round to a friend's house. I can't even remember the name of this bloke, but he would not let me touch his deck. <laughs> and he's like, well, he's saying, he pressed that and then he bring that fader across and then he pressed that. And I'm like, well, can I have a go? No. <laughs> I'm like, well, how am I going to learn how to do this if you don't let me touch it? He's like, well, just don't, just I'll show you. And then just don't touch it, and it—it it was painful. After about half an hour, I'm like, "Look, you're gonna have to let me have a go because otherwise, I'm not—I'm—I'm I'm gonna be clueless." So he's like, "All right, I'll let you have one go."
2: <laughs> Put these gloves on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't know what I really can't remember. I
2: could totally relate to it, though, cause it's like I'm like that with my vinyl.
3: Well, exactly. Now, now after years and years of DJing, it's, what, 27, 27 years I've been DJing now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know what I'm like with my equipment. And when I got burgled at the start of this year, it was just like, oh, mm. you know, they took everything. And I was like, <laughs> it's like losing a limb. Yeah. It really is. It's like losing a limb, and I I know you know another friend of mine got burgled a couple of weeks ago, and again they wiped him out. And it it is it is a really deep trauma. You know, it's not like someone's just taking a piece of equipment. It's not like they're taking your mixer from the kitchen. It's not like they're taking a kettle or a toaster. For, For anyone who has played music that long or is playing music as uh, a part of their life, taking that piece of equipment, it's like, I mean, it really is. It's like taking a limb. It's Mm -hmm. like cutting off an arm or a leg. And because it it was my original techniques as well, so they've taken one and left one, and they've taken both my mixes, and I'm like... God, oh, you know, that's my life. Mm. That really is my life. That's 20-odd, 20 27 years of DJing and all the memories that come with it. And my decks, have, I never, ever took them out to DJ with them either. Right. So they always stayed at home. And 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 for me, that's Manchester, London, Paris, Ibiza. They've been everywhere with me. Yeah. They're, they're like really... Like my music equipment is really, and I know it sounds sick, but it's like my babies. It's yeah. like, this is it's it's my stuff, so yeah, I do understand that guy not letting me touch his deck. <laughs> so I'm like, no, my pressure. I
2: was <laughs> oh, yeah, end up different. at the Ascienda because you were the first, I think you were one of the first female DJs in the city, full stop, yeah. Weren't you? But yeah. You, you were certainly the first female to DJ at the Ascienda, yeah. Well, right?
3: me and Kath McDermott, yeah. Kath was upstairs, and I was hosted the downstairs room for the for pretty much for the tenure of Flesh at the Hacienda. And I do you know what you didn't really I didn't I did not really think about it in terms of male, female at all. I just thought of it in terms of rocking up somewhere, playing some records and doing my job. Yeah. And it was only much, much later that I realised, you know, like I'm reading a book and I'm thinking where are all the women in this game and then realizing that the friends that I had who were female DJs we were the only ones and then it became a bit more like focused on yeah we're kind of there at the vanguard of whatever this movement is at the front of it And because we're here, then other people hopefully will come through. And, you know, now there are so many more female DJs and, you know, not wanting to take credit for it or anything like that. But I think if none of us girls have done it, me, Princess Julia, Mrs. Wood, Rachel Auburn, um, Angel at Nottingham, Kath McDermott, I think if none of us had done that, then it would have been a lot more difficult for you know, like Smoking Joe as well at trade, you know, it would have been a lot more difficult for the people now, you know, your Annie Max, your um, Nicole Mudebus, Black Madonna, all of those women to come through. Because before us, the only women who who were playing records were on the radio. Yeah. So it was Annie Nightingale and it was Janice Long, but that was it. You know, women didn't really get involved with music and, you know, still, you know, as many as there are, if you put it on percentages, it's nowhere near a 50-50 still.
2: Mm, not yet. Mm-mm. Maybe one day, if you carry on inspiring people like
3: that. <laughs> and ranting and getting political and beating my Suffragette 100 drum.
2: But that's all part of the same thing, isn't it? All that's intrinsic to me, if you... If you a musician, usually musicians have got that sort of soul, do not they? Yeah, but you, you, can, you want you know, to make the world better, don't you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the things I find really frustrating is still when I'm out DJing, how many women will come up to me and say, oh, you know, it's amazing seeing a female DJ. You know, we never see it. And I just want to scream. It's like, <laughs> are you serious? This is 2019 and I'm still hearing this. That women do not see women behind the decks, and then I'll look at a festival lineup, and then there won't be any women on the lineup. So yes, they're right. You don't see female DJs. Is still in 2019, you don't see an an even split of female DJs on the bill. So that i find is very frustrating because it's not like there aren't any now there mm. are loads yeah and if there are loads more female djs why aren't there loads more female djs on their yeah lineups it just doesn't make any sense
2: you've worked alongside some of the biggest superstar djs who yeah. that in, in the world you yeah. probably worked alongside all of them you? Um, <laughs> have you all, uh, yeah. have you got any favorite people out there that people might have heard of, DJs?
3: Oh, my, I mean, God, there's so many. But one of my absolute favourites is Giles Peterson. I had very many great memories of working with Giles. You know, I had, first of all, I used to buy Talking Loud records. I remember playing. In fact, here's the memory. Before I started DJing, I did a fashion show for um for Manchester Manchester University Fashion at the Toast Rack. Yeah. And it was their end of year fashion show. And one of the tracks that we I walked to was The Young Disciples, Get Yourself Together. Yeah. And they played this track so much, I was like, I need to have that album. So I asked them what the music was. And I went out and bought The Young Disciples. And then after buying The Young Disciples, I was like, right, I'm buying everything from Talking Loud. So I bought Galeano, I bought... Pretty much everything that was out on Talking Loud up until that point I bought. So first of all, to me, Talking Loud was just this magnificent label that was putting out this new brand of like acid jazz. I never thought for a minute that I would end up going to work for the label. It just didn't even cross my mind. I, I just respected Giles and Norman Jay and whoever else was involved you know uh, Marco and Carleen Anderson and all the artists that were involved for creating this beautiful music I think it was 90 yeah it was 95 and I was headhunted for a PR job at Mercury Records and Giles called me and said you need to come in and be interviewed by the head of press we want you to come and do this job and I ignored it. And then Eddie Gordon called me from Manifesto Records and he said, you know, we want you to come in and do this press job. And I ignored it. And then they, they were both calling me and just going, you know, why haven't you come in to do this? We need this We need this PR who's going to promote all our music because we keep getting PRs that don't know what they're talking about. And at the time as well, I was writing for Mixmag and Update and that. So they knew that I knew my music. Yeah. Anyway, I went in for an interview. And when I finished the interview, I was like, there's there's, there's just no way. I, just, I don't even know. I'd watched it turn from day to night in a record label. I'd mm-hmm. never worked in a record label for my, in all of my life. And by the time I got home, they'd left a message on my answer phone saying, you start on Monday. All the big key yeah. albums, like groundbreaking albums, and I was PRing it. I also had Lamb on Fontana. I broke them to the press. Um, And on Manifesto, I had Todd Terry, David Morales, Masters at Work... Oh God, just practically every, I had, in fact, the first single I worked for Manifesto was Josh Wink's Higher State of Consciousness. Wow, some tune. So I had like, just that was my yeah. roster. And I'd never worked press before, I didn't know
2: to- It's like a dream job, but you had, you, were you DJing as well at the same yeah, time? Yeah? yeah, 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 yeah. So you had two yeah, dream yeah. jobs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was mad.
3: It was just this mad time where everything was just so right and and buzzy and the energy was just ridiculous and I had the honor of working with all of those artists and some of the best people in the business so yeah Giles Peterson he's still so enthusiastic he knows his music and it's every music and you know from Manchester to Mali to um, Brazil Mm. Giles is musical knowledge is just phenomenal and if i could have e- even a tiny corner of that <laughs> um capability i would die a very happy woman because his record collection is what's it like fifty thousand strong That's a lot it. yeah <laughs> yeah and he you know he has his own radio station now with worldwide yeah. and and he does the worldwide awards and he has a festival in set every summer and he's now got this one in cambridgeshire and you know guess what he's got an mbe as well you know so it's just like incredible and he's aside from all of that he's just a really nice guy and he 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 it's someone that i have had the absolute ultimate most amount of fun working with and um yeah Enough kiss-ass. He's amazing. He's amazing. I love him to bits.
2: Let me ask you about another person that was quite influential. I believe he was influential on helped uh, out a bit. Anthony H. Wilson.
3: Massively influential to me. I mean, it's funny. I, I started watching Anthony Wilson on TV. I think he... Did he start on Granada Reports yeah. or something yeah. like that? So I was aware of him being on telly before being aware of what he did musically. I think he did shows on TV and talk shows and stuff like that. And he was always very news to me before he was music. That's right. And then um the was it the Oxford Road Show came about and um I became aware of the music that that he was involved with through factory joy division and stuff like that. And it's like oh how could, oh, how, could this, how could this person yeah. that was reading the weather or something <laughs> or reading reading the regional news on Granada suddenly be this like almost Svengali for Manchester music? And then I worked at Granada and I met him and he was always just an absolute gentleman. He'd always have... We'd always pass the time of day, chit-chat, chit-chat. And whenever I saw him, like, wandering around the streets of Manchester, he'd always just be like, oh, hi, Paulette, you know, how are you doing? Chat, 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 and just talk about anything, talk about music, talk about telly, talk about whatever it was. And it just was always super cool. And I just Mm. thought, that's Manchester to me. It doesn't matter who you are or how high you get or how high you are just to be real and decent and still really enthusiastic and interested and and just really push it, push yeah. it as far as he could push it. That, that for me, is Manchester.
2: Mm, the spirit of the city. I want to ask you about the spirit of the city. I mean, cause as a born and bred Mancunian who's lived in other parts of the world. Yeah, there's uh, nowhere the, better. Nowhere better. <laughs> tell, tell us, what, what is it about the spirit of the city that you love? I mean, it's hard to be objective when you are a Mancunian.
3: I say to people that if you cut me through the middle, that was what you would see. It'd be like, I have got Mancunian running through me like a stick of rock. <laughs> you can't, you just can't. It, it. It's something that you can't even really explain that as many countries as I've lived in, I've not been able to be anything other than a mank, And When I first moved to London and I wanted to work in radio and Simon Sadler, who was then the programme controller at Kiss, said to me, you'll never work in radio in London because of your Manchester accent. And it was the first time actually I'd met like antagonism, not for being black, not for being female, but for being a mank. Which is just the most ridiculous thing. But actually, I became aware of there being a north-south divide by moving south. And yet, even though there was that divide, the Manchester spirit is, it doesn't matter what anybody tells you, if anybody tells you no, and this is for good and for bad, if people say, no, you just don't listen.
2: (laughs) You know what? You're not the first guest on the podcast to say that. We've had a lot of people saying that. If you tried to tell us we can't do it, we're going oh, to go no, and do it. Oh no, it's the worst. We're just going to do it. Just going
3: to do it. Even when I was moving back from Ibiza, and people were like, you know, why are you going back to Manchester? It's a disaster. You never want to go back, you know. And I just had every reason why coming back here would be a bad idea. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's home. Mm-hmm. What can be wrong about going home? It's where my family are. It's where my life is, it's where my culture is. It's what I know. It's what I know like absolutely down to the atom of it <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> you know yeah. it's like I know where I am with Manchester fish and chips. We <laughs> yeah. don't mess about with you yeah. know, and we don't I know where I am with Manchester people. We don't mess about. we're just dead straight, yeah. and if you don't like it, tough, you know just we're dead straight, we're really, like, sometimes a little bit harsh, but, you know, tough love. But if we do love people, then we give everybody everything. Mm -hmm. And it's just the most beautiful place to be. There are so few places where you can walk down the street and talk to anyone. And I know that's a standard stereotypical, "This this is Manchester, but it's true. That's how warm we are. We're accepting of absolutely everybody until they're not accepting of us. And then if you cross them out, then that's a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) It's a mistake and you'll live with it for the rest of your life. But then, you know, such is life.
2: Here's a question for you. What did your twin sister, Paula, what was her path through life? Has it been similar to yours or completely different?
3: Completely different. Well, I say completely different, but in fact, we've kind of mm, got, got a bit close together as we've got older. My twin is a chaplain at a school and this year she was elected as a councillor on Blackpool City Council and she's the first black female councillor on Blackpool City Council, which is just an awesome result. She's just done so well.
2: Paulette, let me ask you this question. Uh, If I was to ask you, who are your favourite humans of Manchester ever, who would they be?
3: Oh, the um, first one has to be a Pankhurst. Um, my my first project in school, I think I might, might have been eight or nine years old, my mum's still got the project, was on votes for women and the suffragette movement. And I would not be doing anything, anything at all, if it wasn't for the Pankhurst and the suffragette movement, which started in Manchester. So that's my first, um, well, no, actually, my first favorite Mancunian would be my mum Blanche Finlay, yep. Blanche Finlay Stafford, because she's just set the standard for everything, and she's as mad as a box of frogs, <laughs> which <laughs> is why I am as mad as a box of frogs. But I love my mum to bits. But she, she more than that, she is just the the biggest inspiration, and has been the person that has just said don't take no for an answer, keep pushing through, just always try and be the best and, you know, just try and do everything with dignity and, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, I've done just that. Yeah. And the third, third, it's difficult because, you know, there are so many men in Manchester but Tony Wilson. Yeah.
2: And his name's cropped up quite a lot as well. And I must say, one of my favourite moments of these uh, the podcasts that we've done, we're on series three here, but we had Ellen Pankhurst in here doing the same thing that you were doing, sat there in that same seat, and that was absolutely Oh my inspiring. God, I must be like... I'm, I mean, she's like... The, I just the...
3: rub myself on the seat and see if it works.
2: out. Sounds weird, but... The great-granddaughter you know. of uh, Emmeline Pankhurst. Exactly, rub myself
3: on the seat.
2: <laughs> uh, I could talk to you all day about... I mean, there's loads of things that you do that we're not going to get a chance to cover now, but you do a lot of work outside your DJ now. Yeah, you do a lot mentoring, mentoring, teaching. Helping and... people to, you know, achieve excellence yeah. in what they do. Before you go, Paulette, Describe Manchester in three words.
3: The absolute business.
2: Paulette Constable, thank you for being a human of Excess
3: Manchester. Thank you, Clint.
2: That was Paulette Constable. Thanks very much for joining us in this series. We've loved sharing with you the fascinating stories from some of Manchester's most inspirational people. Don't forget to keep following us on social media and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us, feel free to leave us a review if you like it. And thank you again to our friends at Safer Roads GM. For sponsoring this series and thank you for listening. See you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.